welcome to the Chronicle of the Horse podcast. I'm Molly Bailey, senior reporter for the Chronicle of the Horse. Before I introduce our guest this week, we'd like to thank our sponsors, KER and Mane and Tail. When you see a horse feed or supplement developed by Kentucky Equine Research, you know it's based on over 30 years of science. With nutrition and exercise physiology research facilities in Kentucky and Florida, Kentucky Equine Research investigates innovative supplements, validates unique feed ingredients, and optimizes partner feeds. Look for KER products and learn more at KER.com. Kentucky Equine Research, world leaders in equine nutrition. Your horse, your friend, your companion. It's about trust and a bond built with care and hard work. Georgina Bloomberg with Boston. Competition brings out the best in both of us. Confidence, determination, and the sheer will to win. This is where we shine. Eight times it is for Georgina Bloomberg. She is through. Mane and Tail have been my go-to products for as long as I can remember. Make them part of yours. Safety and eventing is always at the forefront of the minds of governing bodies and participants, but the discussion has been reignited in the wake of the, Catherine, of the death of Catherine Morrill and her horse Carry On at the Rocking Horse Winter Three Horse Trials in Florida on February 29th. Improving safety and eventing is a multifaceted challenge, which includes finding ways to make cross-country jumps safer with frangible technology, examining cross-country course design, looking at horse and rider qualifications, and discussing rider responsibility. Catherine's accident occurred at a table on the cross-country course at Rocking Horse, and in the aftermath, five-star rider Jonathan Holling decided to start a fundraiser with other stakeholders in the sport for frangible MIM tables. It's currently raised just over $80,000 of a $500,000 goal. Also joining us today is amateur writer Maggie Dietrich, who has moved to write a blog for VentingNation.com, which went viral, asking for transparency from officials after accidents that result in the death of a horse or rider. I'll be turning it over to one of our eventing gurus at the Chronicle of the Horse, Lindsay Barrett, who will be joining us to talk to Maggie and John. Thank you, Molly. I'm Lindsay Barrett, and I'd like to introduce our guest today. Originally from Texas, Maggie is an amateur rider based in Malvern, Pennsylvania. She's a working amateur with a full-time job as a professional engineer in the HVAC industry, which she balances with competing her off-the-track thoroughbred, Kuthaloo, at the CCI two-star level. While earning a degree in equine sciences at the University of Kentucky and a second degree in uh, mechanical and energy engineering at the University of North Texas, Maggie developed her former horse, Divine Comedy, to the advanced level. Maggie also collects and analyzes data for eventingnation.com and has also collaborated with Echo Ratings on various projects. John is a five-star writer and frequent contributor to the Chronicles Between Rounds column. He serves on the U.S. Equestrian Federation, Competition Management, and the Human and Equine Safety and Welfare Committees, and the International Disciplines Council, and is the Vice Chair of the Eventing Sport Committee. He is the National Safety Officer to the FEI, and is the Chair of the United States Eventing Association's Cross-Country Safety Subcommittee. He and his wife, Jennifer Holling, run Willow Run Farm in Ocala, Florida. Maggie and John, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hi, Lindsay. Thanks for having me. Maggie, I'd like to start with you. You were moved to write a blog in the aftermath of the accident at Rocking Horse. Can you just talk a little bit about this accident and what made you decide to write it, uh, write the blog now? Sure, Lindsay. Uh, I was right, moved to write the blog when I noticed, again, the age of Catherine Morrill and how we seem to be losing people in my age group, women in my age group, 
and it just seemed like nothing was happening. Um, you know, and I, I understand that a lot of people feel that lots of things are happening, but to the outside person, we never seem to get any communication as to what exactly went on. So obviously it was written out of a place of frustration and anger and just general fear, not just for myself, but for the general community. Um, I know a lot of people who are in similar positions to me. We're all amateurs, we're all young riders, and we're trying our best to compete at a sport that is actually incredibly dangerous. And while we know that the Federation is, is working to reduce risk, we don't know what they're doing specifically to investigate these accidents. And I just wanted to touch base, and clearly I wasn't the only person who felt that way. Right, right. And you've worked um, a lot with high performance data. Can you talk just a little bit about that and what sort of data you'd like to see? Right, so I work a lot with the, um, I collect all of the records of, competition records of advanced four-star horses, five-star horses, not just the US and North America, but actually I collect that information from every single four-star competition and five-star competition all over the world. I would love to do it for lower levels, but at a certain point, it becomes exponentially too much time. So I concentrate on the advanced four-star and five-star levels. I take that data, I classify it, not unlike what Echo Ratings does, but I concentrate primarily on North American competition. And I can access quite a bit of data and look at it and analyze it based on whether or not I think um, like I, I tend to work with dressage data a lot and try to predict dressage scores. Uh, cross country can be a little bit more difficult just because of the discrete nature of like a cross country penalty rather than the graduated nature of the dressage scoring range. And same thing with stadium, but I have quite a lot of data at my fingertips in order to evaluate whether a person I, I don't want to say whether a person should be at their level. I think that's a little too strong, but I, I can easily look and see a pattern um, and I can read between the lines a lot of the times on what's happening in a person's record. And as far as the accident reports, um, if those were to be made public, what sort of information would be helpful, do you think? So I've been doing some research in the past week or so into different sports that ha are, have incredibly high, and I don't say sports, hobbies, uh, that also are um, livelihoods for people. So not unlike ours, sports like skydiving, sports like mountaineering. You know, I had brought up NASCAR, but there is a different correlation to the fact that we have amateurs participating in these sports versus NASCAR. Um, but skydiving and mountaineering, they have a huge, they have a, a online incident report database where they actually do publish, and it is anonymous, and then granted, I understand that we don't, have that anonymity because our sport is smaller than these two but we we actually can look at the skydiving incidents and you can see not just actual fatalities you can also see serious injury reports you can see um, near misses where something went wrong but everyone turned out okay and these are reports that are published online they don't give out much in terms of identifying details other than the background of the skydiver and they say you know this skydiver had you know did x wrong and 
maybe he should have, I don't know skydiving as well, so I can't give the technicalities out, but, but they have uh, peer, peer reviews that say like, this is what happened to this person. This is, they made this decision and it didn't work and it came out okay or it didn't come out okay, but this is, this is what happened and what went wrong. But sometimes the incident reports actually get in more in depth and say, look, you know, this person was doing this uh, unsafely multiple times and had been warned by peers, like maybe they shouldn't do that and did it anyways. Um, other things that uh, include like a culture of safety in skydiving where the peers will actually, they actually get on to the, to each other and call them out when they're not doing something safe. So that to me is something that we should be looking into. Uh, you know, I understand there is definitely legal implications to releasing information. And I think most of us do. And that's what, you know, we don't want to just say here, oh, there are legal in implications, but like rather that USCA and USCF maybe have reached out to these other sports and see how they handle these uh, incident reports, because clearly other sports do mm -hmm. handle them. And John, maybe you can um, can chime in here since you're involved with the um, USCA and the Cross Country Safety Committee. Um, can you just talk a little bit ab about the um, investigations that happen, and and um, do you all look to other sports? Um, yeah. So what we typically do when something like this happens, and and before we even get into that, I do have to say that just to keep everything sort of in perspective, I think it's important to know that eventing on a whole is actually a relatively safe sport and it has over the last 10-15 years gotten safer statistically what happens is you know as maggie was just saying it's a relatively small sport and so when you have a tragedy an accident like happened to cat it gets known very quickly with social media and because it's a small world it affects everybody um so i think we just have to realize on one hand that it's horribly tragic and we don't want it to happen. While on the other hand, it is still a rare enough occurrence compared to some other sports. Um, so I think we just need to keep that. We do, we do have to keep that somewhat in perspective, which is not Absolutely. me saying that it's okay. Um, I will say that the USEA and USEF reviews all of this stuff when it happens. And you know, I will admit, Maggie, when I first read your article, I was, as an insider who knows what goes on, my first reaction was annoyance and anger at reading it. And then I took a moment and stepped back and thought, actually, it's probably quite fair because if you don't know what's going on, because the association or the federation either doesn't or doesn't think that it can share that information with the members, then your perspective is totally valid. And so, you know, obviously there's only so much that I'm, I can say, um, but I think one of the things before we even get into some of the specifics of what we're doing is that we're pushing pretty hard in those groups to say, look guys, we need to do a better job when we're all done with this review. And that's one thing that's important is we review these, we don't investigate them. And there is, you know, legally, that's an important thing to say. Um, but when we're done with these reviews, we need to put out, even if it's a simplified version, some sort of a report for, if not what went wrong, at least something that says, this is what we're gonna do going forward to try to have that not happen again. Um, so I would say to make 
to sort of answer the article and, and the feeling really of a lot of people in the sport, we hear you as far as the transparency goes. I don't know that we're going to get all the way to where you want us to get to of this is what happened. This is where the mistake was made. And this is how we're going to make it not happen again. Um, and, and mostly we won't probably get completely there because there's not really one clear cut answer. There's, um, you know, I'm sure you guys have heard the whole Swiss cheese analogy of, you know, if you take a slice of Swiss cheese, you look at it, there's holes in it. If you put another slice behind it, it covers up some of those holes. And if you put lots of slices of Swiss cheese together, eventually you can close up all of those holes. And so, you know, anytime you have an accident like the one at Rocking Horse, you can look at, you know, you can look at fence design, you can look at course design, you can look at presentation and decoration of the jump, you can look at rider responsibility, you can look at coaches needing to do uh, a better job, you can look at officials maybe needing to pull riders up or give yellow card warnings. There's all kinds of things, and I'm not speaking necessarily of Rocking Horse incident necessarily, but there's all kinds of different reasons as to why these things happen. And you know, I can tell you that our group is looking into many things. And the frangible fence idea is just one small piece of what we're looking into. Yeah, going on the frangible fences, um, John, can you talk a little bit about the fundraiser that you've set up with a few other stakeholders in the sport and what your goal is there? Yeah, so, you know, like Maggie was saying, I was frustrated and angry myself on Sunday at Rocking Horse, um, sitting there thinking like, you know, taking it in my case, even a little bit more personally, probably because not, not because I was thinking on, on Maggie's idea of, you know, these are all women my age, but on my hand thinking, oh my gosh, like we've, I've tried so hard to help. And yet here I am again, um, here we are again as a sport what is going on? And all I thought of at the time was, okay, it was a table. It was a single table galloping in a, in a field. Have we done everything we can do? And I would say the answer to me as I sat there was we did everything we could do with course design. I thought Morgan did a very good job with course design. We did everything we could do with presentation of the fence. He had you know, while maybe there was little things you could do here or there, he had followed all of the guidelines in place that we think are good guidelines for presenting that sense. Um, she was coached by a qualified instructor who had ridden on a team level for Canada. Um, she had passed all of the minimum eligibility requirements to be there. She had ridden at events with good officials um, present at lots of levels. And so the first thing that came to mind as I sat there in my truck was we have frangible tables. Why didn't we do that? And so without okaying it with anybody, <laughs> I went ahead and put that video together and said, look guys, let's not leave this to the USDA or USCF or FEI because they've done everything that they can think to do. They've put rules out to put frangible technology on in the playing field. They've put guidelines out. They've done all this stuff. They've passed rules. To me, they've done their job to this point. And yet we still have a table out there that doesn't have the cutting edge technology on it. And look, there's some debate as to whether or not those tables are going to activate as quickly as say a frangible oxer would because it's a big, heavy table, but it does meet the FEI requirements. 
And so why aren't we using it? So I put a challenge out and said, let's get $500,000 together and let's start replacing these tables with frangible technology where and when it's appropriate. And I think, you know, obviously there's a lot of people who feel similar to me about it and think, let's do it. So we went ahead. I originally thought it would just go through the USCA foundation. Um, then my friend Andy Bull said, let's do a GoFundMe as well because that's quick and convenient for people to send money to and we don't want to hold up anybody who wants to send money. So we've got these two separate um, ways. You can go through the GoFundMe fundraiser or you can send your money to the foundation. If it goes to the foundation, it is tax deductible, which is nice. If it goes to the GoFundMe, it's just easier to send it in. And we've raised just right around $100,000 now in you know pretty short order. So it's pretty exciting. And I will say there's companies coming on board who who want to do grants and things like that. So that's pretty exciting as well. We've seen um, several examples of fringible technology saving horses and riders from serious falls. Um, You know, the most recent one I can think of is Burley. Um, Are there any unintended consequences of fringible technology? Will people maybe ride more recklessly knowing that the fences will fall? I think when fringible technology first came in and there were no penalties for it, Certainly, there were times where you could have riders riding down dangerously or aggressive to a fence. And I remember actually, funny enough, years ago when they first came in, riding down to a set of rails in the water that I was nervous about. And I hadn't thought anything much of it. But as I was riding down there, my horse started to back up a little bit. And the thought entered my mind of, well, it doesn't matter. It falls down if I hit it. And I remember leaving the fence and we jumped it fine. And I, But I remember leaving thinking what was that about? Like that should never enter your head when you're competing out there. Um, And so when the conversation came forward to, Hey, should we have some penalties for this? That was in my head at the time anyway. And I said, yeah, you know what? I think maybe that's, that's something that needs to happen. So I think as long as there's a penalty that's substantial enough for knocking those or activating those um, frangible devices, then no, I don't think you have people who are going to be riding badly. And in fact, I think you could end up with people riding better knowing if I ride down to that big set of rails recklessly and I hit it, I'm not going to slip over the top of it and get away with it with just my horse a little beat up. I'm going to get a penalty. And I think you could actually decrease some dangerous riding by putting these devices in. Having said that, I think it's important to note that to activate one of these fences is like, I believe it's 240 joules, which is a measure of force. To knock down a show jump rail is five joules. So we're not talking about a light tap activates these things. It is a significant force. And you've mentioned that the USCA Cross-Country Safety Subcommittee has been holding meetings um, in the wake of Catherine's death. Can you talk a little bit about what you're discussing? I know a little bit has been about qualifications and MERs. Yeah, so uh, without getting too much into the the weeds about it because those groups are still meeting, I'll just say that we have basically, in addition to this frangible fence fundraiser idea, which again is just one piece of it, the other two things that we're looking at right now are one, um, minimum eligibility requirements on the day. So we've looked into, and, and I actually have to say I'm not sure where this part of it will come, we looked into, is there any correlation between dressage and cross-country performance? So if you don't get a certain, under a certain score, should you still be allowed to continue? So we've, we started looking at that data. We haven't gotten anything back, 
my gut personally tells me that that probably doesn't correlate because I know of enough great cross country horses that are, <laughs> that are tragic in the dressage. Um, but maybe those are the exceptions. Who knows? So we need to look at that. We're also looking at show jumping. If you show jump first, which is becoming more and more at the horse trial and short format, the way that we go, if you show jump first and you get over um, five or over four, if you get five rails or more, actually the data is looking like that is a good indicator that you're not going to have a successful cross country round. So I think that's something that is going to be what already was going forward from our committee. And I think it's something that we're going to continue to push going forward that if you have a bad show jumping day, it's not your day to go cross country and you're not going to be allowed. Um, so that's one group that we're looking. That's, that's one thing that one of those emergency task forces are looking at. The other thing that we're looking at um, with our second group is some sort of a rider categorization or rider licensing um, type group. What that's going to look like, I can't really say for sure yet, but I will say the initial thing that we've noticed is that roughly speaking, keeping it very general here, to move up a level, you basically have to be successful at four competitions. That's basically what the rules say, give or take. Um, interestingly, if you look at some of the top horses and riders in the world, they do two to three times that with their horses before they move a horse up. So um, the question is, if the William Fox Pitts, Pippa Funnels, Leslie Laws of the world are doing eight to 12 competitions at training level or preliminary or intermediate before they move up the level, then why are we allowing less experienced competitors who are moving up their first time to a level to do it in four? And so should we look at that and have some sort of a licensing where we say, all right, Leslie Law, you have a lot of experience. We've got this minimum criteria here where if you have a horse that you think is great, that you think you can do it in four events, you can continue to do it the way we're doing it. But if John Smith is doing his first advanced, he needs to go this slower route his first time up the levels to make sure he has all of the knowledge that he needs to get there. And so we're seriously looking at that. Now, Maggie, as an adult amateur rider, um, how do you think tighter MERs might, might uh, affect you? I'm all for them, to be perfectly mm -hmm. honest. I actually also feel that there should be some kind of subjective review before you can move up. Um, one of the sports I've been looking into is skydiving, as I previously mentioned. One thing they have is not only do they need like 25 jumps in order to get a license uh, just to do a solo dive, a skydive, but they have each of those has to be with an instructor who signs off on the quality of that run or jump. Um, I don't necessarily think we need to go quite that extreme, but you know, looking at some of the records of the people who have tragically passed away, like John says, there's there's no real um, there's no really strong flags where you can say, okay, like they weren't scoring what we they needed to be scoring. Maybe their dressage was a little high, maybe they had a few extra rails, but overall there weren't any huge red flags. However, you know, we we can have no red flags on our record on paper, but everyone can say, 
they were, you know, and I'm not specifically referring to any of these writers because again, I don't know their stories. I don't know how they wrote. I don't know any of that, but there's when a serious accident occurs in the sport, you often hear echoes of, we knew it was coming, you know, so-and-so always rode, they always missed like that kind of thing. And I think that having a, uh, some way for maybe the TDs know who's trying to move up, like maybe there's a way they can submit that and say, I want the TD to keep an eye on me. So in order to like sign off on my run, because I want to use it as a move up event, um, something like that, you know, again, I'm just trying to throw out an idea, but just looking on paper is not always the correct decision we need to bring in a subjective element. And I honestly believe that licensing for the prelim level, for the intermediate level, and for the advanced level needs to be something that comes into play. And I know people are not gonna like hearing that. I know it's gonna get more expensive and it's gonna take more time and more, hor like more horse mileage in order to get the experience to move up in levels. But that's, that's what we need to do to, safe, uh, to protect people and our sport. Can I say something to that? Absolutely. So, and this is more of just a general question, not necessarily just to you, Maggie, but to everybody and everybody listening. I don't know why, and this is something we have talked about in my committee a lot, I've talked about with a lot of my peers, why it is in the sport of eventing that appears to be very unique to eventing, that particularly amateurs in the sport and kids in the sport, and kids makes a little more sense to me because they're all overly ambitious and dumb, um, and I have one, so I can say that. Um, why there is this mentality in eventing that if you're successful at a level, you have to move up to the next level. In the jumpers, you have people who jump competitively who are amateurs, and they jump in a certain division their entire career, and they're content, and they enjoy it, and they have a good time, but they never have ambition of getting into the Grand Prix ring. And in eventing, it seems like when you get someone who's a good amateur rider and they're successful at preliminary, either through pressure they put on themselves or pressure from their peers, they feel that then they need to move up to intermediate. And when they're good there, they need to move up to advanced. And why is it, and this is a big question for our sport, and I think it's a big part of the problem, why is it that when we have a good season, we suddenly feel like, well, gosh, that's not enough. I have to go up the next level. That doesn't happen in these other sports, and I don't know why it happens in ours. I definitely agree with you, John, and I definitely think that if you're comfortable at a level and you don't feel like you want to move up, you shouldn't. But there's also a difference between people feeling like they need to move up and feeling pressure because they have a good record or because um, their friends are like, oh, you should move up, and people who want to move up, and because they had a good season on paper, they do it and maybe they aren't ready. Um, we have a lot of culture. Our culture is very geared towards eventers who, you know, we're proud that, that we do this on our own to an extent. We're proud that we, we moved up so quickly sometimes. We're proud that we had a near miss and we post the photos on social media and I don't quite understand why those are good things. You shouldn't move 100%. up even if you have a good season. Right. Like, I'm tired of seeing people post on Facebook, like, oh, my God, look at this near miss. It was almost we almost fell. But look how well we saved it. I mean, I see that from levels up from training through five star and 
people comment and are admiring and it's not the culture we should have we should have a culture where someone is calling them out and saying that was unsafe like maybe you don't need to be at that level or maybe you don't need to move up beyond that for now at least right 100 percent. you know and i think the other thing is that if you look at these records of these top riders with their horses the other thing you'll notice is they play around with the levels a lot so you'll have a lot of them who maybe they got to kentucky but if you look at the record of the horse they probably did in an advanced well, came out, did an intermediate advance, and they might run a preliminary somewhere in there in that horse's career. And they're not always coming out thinking, well, this is my advanced horse, so I go advanced. You can go back and forth. And Maggie, for, for someone who has one horse and maybe isn't always able to ride um, as much as you want or when you want, how do you ensure um, that you're riding responsibly and safely at the level? And, and what advice can you give to, to other amateur riders? Well, I can only give the advice that I personally am taking, which is I, I am one of those amateurs who I would rather go and do than win at a certain level. So I know that I, my ambition sometimes outstrips my common sense. So I very, am very careful about riding with someone who will rein me in and tell me, no, you can't move up. No, this horse isn't ready. No, this horse may not be the, the horse that needs to go at a higher level and I invest in my training. I, I know not everyone as an amateur can do that, but I would prefer quality over quantity. So I have one horse and I could afford, you know, more, but I would have to cut my instruction. I'd have to cut my coaching and I don't want to do that because I want to invest in safety. Um, I have a horse who did you know really well at the level last year. Um, he's great on paper, he's brave, but his jump form really isn't where it needs to be right now um, to move up a level. So we're just being really cautious about it. And he's older, I wish he was six, but he's 10. I ride with someone who's telling me, it's, you know, no, it's not time yet. Okay, maybe it'll never be time but I think it's really important to uh, tune into professionals and make sure that you're buying into their coaching and their expertise in order to uh, rein you in sometimes if you're that type of personality. So that's, that's the only advice I can give on that is, is don't be so ambitious that you override your, the professionals that you're paying to give you their opinion. And John, what do you do with your students who are eager to move up? You know, I guess the one thing I would just say sort of the start is, I think we have a unique sport in this country in that you really can find competitions of some level anywhere in the country you are. You may have to drive a little bit, but I grew up in Wisconsin and there, were, there was eventing in Wisconsin, but really only up through the training level. And I was sitting here thinking to myself, it's a little bit like surfing. So on Lake Michigan, you would see people in the summertime, usually some guy would go out there and try to surf on Lake Michigan. And I always sort of laughed. Um, but as I sit here, there's actually a little bit of a parallel to our sport because that guy who in the summer wants to try to surf on Lake Michigan isn't then entering a surfing competition in Maui and trying to surf against the best surfers in the world. But it seems like in eventing, you get that a little bit 
where you have people who were like me when I was a kid who are training in their small little pond, um, wherever that is, and not necessarily just saying regionally, but sometimes with their coaches, like Maggie was saying, who aren't going to rein them in, um, and getting told they're great and sort of measuring themselves against the people they see every weekend who are in their same little circle, their same little pond. And then they leave that pond and go travel elsewhere, maybe move up a level where they think they're prepared, but because they've been competing against their little people in their little world, they're really not as prepared as they think. And then reality kind of slaps them in the face. And I think that happens sometimes. So I'm in a unique position being here in Ocala, Florida, where if I have students that are getting overly ambitious, um, it's actually pretty straightforward. All I have to do is say, right, let's go watch a competition. This is the stuff that they're doing. These are the riders you're going to be riding against. Are we ready for that? And that usually, I mean, honestly, I usually don't even have to have that conversation because they see it every weekend. They walk next to, they're riding their training level course. They're walking the fences right next to the, the preliminary course. They know exactly what they're going to have to do and so on as you go up the levels. The other thing that I do quite often, if I have a person who's a student of mine and, you know, I would say this actually, I say it quite often, but it doesn't happen often. And if I have a student from time to time who wants to go up to a level that I question whether or not they're ready to do that, I am very fortunate. I have all of the facilities here at my farm, um, or at least in town, where I can say, right, these are the questions you need to answer. This is the height you need to be able to jump. Let's see if we can successfully do it at home. And I set that measuring stick. So if they want to go preliminary, I set up a proper preliminary show jumping course. I set up a proper preliminary coffin, which coincidentally is usually set up with fences that are show jumps that fall down, or at least are some sort of knockdownable type fence or very safe inviting shapes. But the question is the same. And if they can answer those questions at home, well, then I say, right, you've answered the questions. You've got the form at the competition. You're ready to go. And if I think maybe they're not ready, typically then they can't answer those questions and the question answers itself quite honestly. But I would say that doesn't happen often because my students are in my program and they trust me because they're in the program. And, you know, we make a team decision as to look, okay, this is your goal. You want to go to this competition. Here's how we're going to get there. And we lay it out. And if we go along the way and it's not working, then we tailor and change that plan as we go. Well, I know there are so many aspects to consider when looking at improving safety in the sport, and there's no one answer, but I just wanted to thank you both again for joining me to discuss such an important topic. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of the Chronicle of the Horse podcast. We really appreciate Maggie and John for coming on the show. And thank you to our sponsors. As a reminder, this episode of the Chronicle of the Horse podcast is brought to you by KER and Main and Tail. You can find links to our sponsors in the show notes accompanying this episode at cough.com. We look forward to our next episode next month, and you can expect new podcasts in your feed every month. You can listen at cough.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Please do follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Chronicorse. Thanks for listening.